Let's ask God to bless us. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Thank you. In your son's name, amen. Okay, as you can tell, we're in Luke 18. Um, it is essentially uh, the whole chapter of Luke 18. I couldn't stop as I was looking through the passage. I, we were, had a conversation last night on the patio, a number of people. You know how they get when you have too many people to have one conversation. There were these small conversations going. And Anna Pinkerton was there, and we were chatting about something, sermons or something. And uh, she brought up this passage out of Luke 18, having to do with the tax collector and the Pharisee going up to the temple to pray. I don't know in reference to what, but as she said it, it stuck in my head. So this morning, I got up and I was looking at that passage. And then looking at the, the chapter around it. And there's a lot of wonderful things in the passage at large. But there's something that, that seems to follow, if there's a thread here, that, that I'd like you to take a look at. It's the second account. There's, a, there's, about, there's like four or five accounts here. There is um, the unrighteous judge. There is the tax collector and the Pharisee. There's bringing the little children to Jesus. There is the rich young ruler. And then there is the healing of the blind man at the end of the chapter. I was talking to somebody, I don't know who it was, might have been Gunn, might have been somebody else. That, that as one of the things we stress as a church, or we try to stress, is that this life that you have in Christ is this life you have in Christ, or you don't. And when people are facing up to the idea of having a life in Christ, they kind of want to know what you have to do to get it. You know, what's the, what's the mumbo-jumbo? What is the... The, the, the good juju you can practice to get this life in Christ or this walk in the spirit, whatever you want to call it, sanctification, holiness. It's about us. It's about us individually, not us as a church. It's about us standing before God on the last day and being able to be approved. Everyone wants to know what they got to do, right? To get that standing. Prove their faith. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor regarded man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, vindicate me against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will vindicate her, or she will wear me out by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not the Lord, will not God vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will vindicate them speedily. So you're told to, you're told to look at a bad man who doesn't want to hear any more of this from that woman. And the basic thing about that woman is that someone who comes at you again and again and again because the judge is the person with the answer, the ability to vindicate. 
Now, as we look for ways to live, we sometimes start to, you might say, um, we're looking for ways to, you know, some people monetize things. As soon as they put a dollar amount on it, they can value it. Uh, There are other people who, just on any numeric value, uh, some metric by which I can measure. And wouldn't, do you ever stop and go, well, how many times did she go? I mean, if you knew that the Bible sort of hinted that if you asked God 12 times, you get what you want. If you just knew 12, (laughs) how quickly could you pray through the prayer? 144. Say it was 144. That's a Bible number, right? 12 times 12. Isn't it? I don't know. I can't do math. We naturally, when we're reading the scriptures, the first word here on your notes on the side says, it's the word standing. It's a word that struck me last night as I was thinking about it, and then as I sat down with the word. How do I how do I get standing with God on this? How do, I, how do I enter this negotiation with the right stuff to offer him? Because right at the end there, in red of that section, it says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth, which ought to give you some pause about your eschatology, whatever it is. Because Jesus was wondering about the eschatology. Will I find any Christians here when I get back? I wonder. But we're wondering because we know I had neighbors years ago who were renting a house in the neighborhood. Very nice house. They were, um, they were, he was a health and wealth, uh, a pastor was was house-setting this house. And one day I was sitting on my porch and watched them drive by in their car again and again and again. And the daughter was in the back seat and she looked over at me like, oh, I am so embarrassed. And I counted. They drove around the block seven times because they were claiming the house like Jericho. You march around the city seven times and it's yours. So they got in their car and drove around the block seven times. We want to know. We're looking for the, the, what kind of dead chicken do you wave over this thing to make it work? To make your faith, and God's going, I'm wondering if I'm even going to find faith. We know we've all got a concern about whether anybody has reached the point that they should reach. And a person who is looking for a metric to pose, they see, ah, frequency is an issue. He told us, if this unrighteous judge is moved by frequency, the Lord especially, who loves you, is going to be moved by frequency. Let's pray the same thing a lot of times. But there's a very subtle problem here. We think that the metric recognized is the thing that we're dealing with. Did I do that thing enough times? Not thinking that I should be thinking about my God. 
not the number of times I drove around the house, not the number of times I petitioned God for Aunt Martha. Have you ever, I, because it's fresh in my mind, I have spoken with car salesmen. Has anyone here ever been a car salesman? There will be church discipline afterwards. Anybody? No, okay, nobody's going to admit it, because I know. I have been into the belly of the beast. I have spoken with these people. They have looked me straight in the eye and told me things. And you could tell if you've ever shopped for a car more than once in your life, you say, where did they learn the same dance? They all, they all go talk to the manager at a certain point. Yes. I hear that amen from Charlie. <laughs> I gotta go talk to my manager. Yes, yes we can't throw the, 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 the doormats in or whatever they are. Floor mats. We'll have to take those out. Oh, we'll not make any money on this. Give me something to work with. Well, I had to put up with this at one of the dealerships. And so I went to another dealership where uh, the salesman was much more accessible, shall we say. And uh, in the process of buying that car, the other salesman kept phoning me. Uh, Leslie got to entertain the call of us driving away from the Ford dealership quarter mile maybe away having bought the car the other salesman calls up on the phone Leslie gets it and she gets to tell him we're driving away from the other dealership in the new car have a nice afternoon there's probably too much satisfaction in that call but what, if you ever went to a car salesman school or someone told you how to sell things, or you first you make the first cold call, then if you call back within two days, um, it will seem like you're really interested. And you know the difference. You know that they're interested in the sale, not interested in you. But they want you to believe that they're interested in you. And we treat God that way. We want him to believe we're interested in him. Because that's what we have let faith become. Him being dumb enough to think my little act is what he was act looking for. That I came enough times. Will he find faith on earth? Because he's concerned about what, how we get lied to about our beliefs. Because if you, if you believe in a personal devil, you can imagine that he is saying, well, I know that faith is what people seek in order to become Christian, so let's confuse that subject more than anything. People will believe what their pastor believes and thinks that because they have faith in what he has faith in, they have faith sufficient. People think because they prayed, they had faith. They think that because they prayed repeatedly, God will believe that they have faith. Ever met those people that didn't get what they want after they, you know, did, them, did the incantation, and then they're angry at God because he didn't fall for it? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I like that phrase, with himself. Now, I don't actually think, some of your translations may say to himself. That always, 
that rivets. You know, he prayed to himself. Of course he did. He's the bad guy in the story. But I think it's just saying, no, he's off by himself in the temple, praying. Praying with himself. If you had seen him, it would have looked, you know, here is a here is a solid Christian businessman going up to the temple, standing off with himself. You can see his mouth moving, you know he's praying. So what a sincere guy. God, I thank thee that I'm not like other men. He's thankful. That's a good thing, right? He's in the temple. He's praying personally. Extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He, he's a good man. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I, he's sacrificial. He's with the work of the church. He gives things to the kingdom. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted so we know that go yeah Thank you, Lord, for not making me like that Pharisee. Doing the same thing. We look at the tax collector and we see the moves of a humble man. He stands afar off, his head's head's down. So when you pray, you bow your head. Let's all bow our head. Because that's the humble move, right? You bow your head, you nod. Everybody's concerned about our last president bowing to various dignitaries of foreign states. Well, we know that it's a a deferential move. We know that in this, God says very directly, if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. So let's get down to it. What do we have to be doing to be humble? Beat your breast. Okay. Okay, I'm stung a little. You know, you rend your garments. I don't care. What are you going to do? Oh, you might. You might start incorporating Lord have mercy into your phrases. Because that sounds so Lord have mercy. Now, every inch of that phrase is great. Lord have mercy. God be merciful. God be merciful to be a sinner. But we can turn looking for that metric, looking for that standing, looking for that fake faith, that fake, we, we think that's all there is, you know. We, we, we don't realize you can know Jesus Christ. We don't know that you can know your God and have a certain reaction to him, his standing to you, not your standing as a religious participant. Do you know there's more? than incorporating a more artful phrase about God's mercy into your language. Because it's pretty neat when people say, Lord have mercy. It's like Christians liking something on Facebook. 
That's what they'll say. I am in enough Christian threads, not commenting. When something happens, there'll be seven, eight people with the phrase, Lord have mercy. Something awful happens. A, tra- a calamity or a tragedy of some, Lord have mercy. Or great wickedness, Lord have mercy. It's like hitting the like button. Now, I don't know where these people's hearts are, but I want you to know there's a fake place. They can be. Because the tax collector says, God, be merciful to be a sinner. Where Christ goes, he went down to his house justified because he was humble. All right? If we look at him and go, okay, all right, so I need to get that across to you, God, how humble I am. And there's a satisfaction in that. I think I may have mentioned this before, but I watched uh, some TBS or some special documentary of some guy following uh, Central and Eastern European uh, monasteries. Following, as he was calling it, the Jesus Prayer. And the Jesus prayer in Orthodox circles is, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Building off of this prayer of humility. It's just great, isn't it? Because it pulls the Christian elements in there. It doesn't just say God. It's Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Sounds more humble than someone reciting the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But you know that the priest tells you to go home and say that 15 times to absolve yourself of your sins. It's amazing how the institution actually gets into you know, promoting, like writing you a prescription. This is what you need to do. Well, so I thought as I watched this show and going through these monasteries, and I like old buildings, I'm not a big fan of orthodoxy, but you know, uh, in any of its forms. But there was a. Um, there was something positive. I was feeling positive about that prayer. I said, yes, you can, you can say that. That's great. That's humility on wheels. That's what was illustrated here. By the end of the show, they had gotten to its final monastery. And as the credits rolled for this documentary, there was a monk foreground on a balcony overlooking some ancient valley saying the Jesus prayer probably to his 10,000th time because he knew the more he said it, the more grace he would get from God. And he was rattling it off so fast with, you know, some beads, a cabinet, you know, Lord Jesus Christ, just drone of Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner, as he repeated it and repeated it and repeated it, combining two parts of this passage. The good line the repetition. Because we're looking for a metric. What will, what, what will give me standing? I need to know what's going to get me answers to my prayers. Get me grace from God. Because you know that God gives grace to faithful people. He has mercy on those. And you want to know, well, this guy went down to his house justified. We start exalting our mercy or excuse me, exalting our humility, even sincerely. The sincerity of something 
um, we sometimes forget we can be sincerely wrong. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, like all good theologians, they rebuked them. But Jesus called... I added those verses. Okay, that, that, those words weren't in there. But Jesus called them to him. In one of the other Gospels it says he was indignant at what the disciples were doing. Saying, let the children come unto me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Will he not hear your prayers and answer you if you pray a lot? Will he not be merciful to you if you beat your breast and stand in the corner of the room and say this phrase? Will he not bring you into the kingdom of God if you act like a child? Now, there are some children here. Sometimes they are a disturbance to the services. Sometimes they sit quietly like the twins and take notes like the twins. Sometimes you've, you've been in a situation where a child just ran to you to sat in your, sit in your lap. Sometimes you say, come over here and sit in my lap, and they look at you like, are you out of your mind? We know that we, we're not given a whole lot here. They, these children were brought to the Lord. Maybe some of them were toddlers. They came to the Lord. Whatever the case. And they got blessed by the Lord. And the Lord says, you know, it's, it's like this. And we, like good adults, try to figure out what is the childlike thing that i got to fake. Because I've got the repetition. I've got the words. I've got the place to stand in the temple. I know how to move my arms. Now i got to act like a kid? Okay, what's that going to be? The Lord doesn't give you what that... He doesn't describe what that is. He leaves it hanging out there. Look at the other Gospels. doesn't tell you there either. just says, unless you receive the kingdom like a child, you shall not enter it. One of the things you've got to remember as we try to apologetically prove the existence of God... God is looking at us trying to prove our existence. God is looking at what you think his standing is. We're so self-absorbed that we sometimes easily get mixed up as to who we're trying to vindicate. Who we're trying to set up um, trying to improve the situation. And we know since works righteousness isn't the path, so a bunch of good deeds and ceremonial observances, we're looking for those ceremonial observances that prove personal faith, because we know that faith is what saves. But actually it's grace that saves, faith that sends the message. So we've got to get the faith right. I have this passage from Job 35. This is the section that Elihu is... Elihu's the one friend of Job who's got it right. He does, he's tired of putting up with Job's friends, and he's tired of putting up with Job. And a lot of people think that since Job was righteous, he's the hero of the book. In a sense, yes, he's the protagonist. The hero is Elihu. Because he's just, I'm fed up. 
and everything Elihu says, then God comes onto the scene and says the exact same thing. And one of the things Elihu says in Job 35, 13, surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him, and you're waiting for him. We have this desire to write our own ticket with God. We want to know what the metric is. We want to know how much to give, how much to sacrifice. Okay, if I have, do I have to do this? Do I have to give 10%? There are churches that say 23.3. You're probably happy you don't have a tithing church at this point. You'd like to know. If you could be told by a man of the cloth that four repetitions of the Jesus prayer is sufficient to get you standing before God's throne. We want to know. We're measuring constantly. And God's going, I don't listen to empty cries. I don't regard them. And when you say you don't see God showing up, when you say that you do not see him in the cases before him, and you're waiting for him, I'm waiting. I prayed. And Martha is still in the hospital. He's looking at you. He's looking at you to see if you look like a child coming to him. Because unless you come to him like a child, what's that mean, Evan? I'm not telling. Neither was Christ. Do you have faith? Do you believe in him? Because as empty as a child's brain is, and I have some grandchildren, <coughs> they are retarded. They have this basic, really basic, I'm not going to say this is what Christ meant, but their opinions, they don't have your adult sophistication at hiding. If they don't like you, remember when Chuckles was uh, younger, he'd just sort of look at you like, okay, I'm thinking about this. Yes, you're my grandfather. I don't know if I accept that. Took him a long time. Finally, said, okay, I'll come over and sit on your lap. There's a, they're too young to be aware of their selfness. They function in it, but they're too young to be aware of it. You've got to kind of be 14 before that really happens. And we with God, the right thing is for you to apprehend who God is to you, who God is before the to you starts to come home. Like a child, it better not be an empty cry. It's not that he, God is waiting for your act to you know, juke itself into some religious perfection. You'll just look, you'll say the right phrase, you'll say it enough times, you will, you will bow your head enough. He's not waiting for your perfected act. He is a certain way. He is a merciful God. The ruler asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Jesus proceeds to give him the very non-evangelical answer. 
And I, I've told you before, but I was in a situation where a Christian disagreed with Jesus on this point. Jesus was wrong here because he did not give the guy the gospel. Okay, I'm with Jesus on that. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. I like that. Why does he say that at the beginning of the passage? Good teacher. He says, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God. Have you thought about who God is in this matter? The ruler, we call him the rich young ruler, wants to get eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And that, that phrase, why do you call me good, there is none good but God, brings kind of a missing character to the rich young ruler's question, who God is. There is none good but God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said... All these I've observed from my youth. And when Jesus heard it, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, that you may have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Some people... Because we all think in terms of what's the metric we're supposed to do. They love this passage if they have a socialist inclination. And they don't love this passage if they have a capitalist inclination. But I, I, can I keep, keep anything? Because we're looking for how much do I write the check for? And already Jesus has said, you know, frequency will work with God. Um, this phrase, God have mercy on me, a sinner, uh, childlikeness, and you might want to consider how much you're giving. This is, this is our tithing sermon. How much are you giving? Are you giving enough to get saved? Is that what Jesus is saying? Because then everyone who was listening to him heard, you know, heard thought, you said that. Those who heard it said, oh, excuse me, Verse 24, Jesus looking at him said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I don't know if a fake white gold Ford is too much to get through the eye of the needle, but we're worried about that, right? It's on credit, so I don't know. Is that what we're dealing with? Are we dealing with what is the metric that proves things to God? When Christ says this, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? If the rich guy cannot be saved, or is difficult for him, the Lord says, look, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Just like the, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. You're thinking about even the, the, the various ways of proving you. You need to be far more concerned whether God has been proved to you. Do you believe in him? Not are you constantly trying, willing to have a light, acceptable, orthodox definition of the living God over here. 
You know he dishes out salvation and eternal life. And so you spend all of your time thinking about whether or not you meet the standing. With God is possible. God who is good. Peter said, Lo, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no man who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive manifold more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So obviously God is not, you can't come back to Peter after Peter has been restored to a family and a house and all the like before he is put to death. You don't come to him and say, ah, you need to give up all you have and give it to the poor and follow Christ. Obviously Christ is not not talking about how much money the rich young ruler had. Because there's something else on the rich young ruler's mind, just like there is when you can't be like a child, you can only fake being like a child. Just like when you wouldn't pray repeatedly because you didn't care enough to pray repeatedly, you thought that repeated prayers get you stuff. Because we appointed a metric to our writing our own ticket with God. Taking the twelve, he said to them, Behold, and I like this because right in the middle of this, you have these various situations where something is being offered, where you go, oh, God will respond to this and this and this and this. Then he says, taking the twelve, he said to them, Behold, you're going up to Jerusalem. We are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written of the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. My gosh. They didn't have to figure that out. That's right there. But look at them. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hid from them. And they did not grasp what was said. It's clueless. The centerpiece of what is. Your, your faith is in him. Not your faith in the faithful humility you can pretend to have. Or even the sincere humility you can, you, you can put forward. You're offering it. Who is he? What has he done? This is what's coming. This is the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and life eternal. That's the gospel. And they weren't picking up on it. But it's going to produce if I have the right view of God, not the right, trying to create the right view of me and trying to promote the right view of me, I will be perpetual in my prayers. I will be humble in my standing because I'll be standing before the living God. Who he is, well, just like a child, you will run to him because nothing is better than God in your life. Nothing is better than God. It's worth everything. You would, you, you, you would go, oh, I have to give up my money for you. Okay. Who do I write the check to? No, it will be like the pearl of great price or the treasure hidden in the field. You will give everything you have to get this good if you know him as you ought to know him. Don't try to pretend that you care that much. He is not that stupid. 
Do you understand what this is about? Do you grasp what it is? Has it been hid from you? Have you found what was hid from the disciples? Do you realize you're looking at the death of a Jew 2,000 years ago? Now, I know there are other religions that are kind of strange. Ours is kind of strange, too. We believe a dead Jew to whom nothing really important in history happened died under Roman control in about 30 AD. And you think that your sins are forgiven by this Jew because this Jew is God. That's a weird belief. You're, you're, I mean, you have to be seriously out of your mind. But no, that's what we believe. What do you believe? What's God standing with you? Does it, do you understand? Have you found this? Have you got a grasp? The very last passage in this uh, chapter, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a multitude going by. He inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out the more, son of David, have mercy on me. When you know who's passing by, everything that you need from him isn't measured out metrically where you can assign a certain num numeric um, uh, value amount to it. You just, you just run to it. What does the kid do when it skins its knee? It knows who its mother is. It runs to its mother. When it loves its father, it runs to its father. It wants to sit on his lap. When you're a blind man, he'd heard of Jesus because he now knows it's Jesus, son of David. They told him in Jesus of Nazareth, he knew that, who that was. He had been hearing about this. Son of David, have mercy on me. When it says in Romans 10, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I mention it to people in their counseling situations is this isn't the head bob or meeting the eyes of the pastor during the raising the hand in the back. I see that hand. Emotionally overwhelmed by a song and walking forward and signing a card. A person can get saved that way, but it's real. But we hide so many realities from ourselves. What would you do how would you act if you discovered that Jesus Christ, son of David, was maker of heaven and earth and had died for your sins? What would you do if you knew that that was true? I mean, absolutely true. This agent died and was raised for your sins and he was the maker of heaven and earth. Would you cry out for his mercy? Would you run away? Some people believe exactly that and run the other direction. You know, even the demons believe and shudder, right? They know the truth. 
a run. But you will have all these qualities. You don't have to figure out ways to juke it. You will have these qualities. You will be perpetual in your prayers. You will be humble in your, in your requests. You will be childlike. You will cry out for his mercy. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me receive my sight. He knew what he wanted from the Lord. People with manners are telling the guy to be quiet because you're ruining things for the rest of us. Trying to have a parade here. Is he Jesus, son of David, to you? Something that he was healed, so immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Would you like your testimony to be thus? Think more of him and his standing with you. What is God standing with you? Not what is your standing with him. That will resolve itself. Because you're asked to have faith in him. There is none good but God. God, with God it is possible to save. You're not... As soon as we start even treating faith alone as a salvific act. Oh yeah, I believe you have faith. But I believe it's because you believe in him. You come to him hat in hand saying, Lord God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. If you believe, you will cry. And uh, I was thinking, Mary, in the earlier part of Luke, Luke 1, it's the Magnificat of Mary. And in the middle of it, verse 50, it says, And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy. We're waiting for that mercy. We know that God's grace to us, his mercy to us, his forgiveness to us, life eternal given to us, is because we had faith, and we're running around here trying to figure out what the rules of the faith is, because we don't think about him. We think about the metric. Think about him. What is his standing with you? Do you believe? Because when you believe at a certain level, you will do everything that is real. You will do everything that is humble. You'll fall on your face. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful that your son revealed yourself to us. And we, reading in the apostles and the followers of your son, these stories, we see who you are, that you are the good, that you are the merciful, that you're watching to be sure that we've come to the place of seeing you clearly and it humbled us. Not that we attempted to humble ourselves in some obvious way. Clear our thoughts up, Lord. Help us meditate on you. Through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we're thankful. Amen.